All right, how are we? Virgil, we good? Good. It is good to see you. First John chapter two. That is where we are going to be today. It is on page 1021. If you're using the Bibles underneath the seat in front of you, if we have not met, my name is Brian Kiley. I'm the director of discipleship here at Bridgeway and very excited to dig into God's word with you this morning. We are in part four of our community on mission series going through the book of first John line by line. And we're continuing a lot of the same kind of ideas that we started to talk about last week. And if you weren't here or you've just had a, had a long week last week, we talked about some of John's purposes for writing the letter of 1 John. And then we also talked about this idea that God's love is what inspires obedience to Him. That love is what inspires obedience. That if you and I, we seek to motivate ourselves towards obedience to God's commands through religious obligation or legalism or a desire for moral performance or anything like that, it's just not going to work long term. But instead, when we're motivated by God's love for us, that changes our hearts so that we become people who desire Obedience. That was a big deal of what we covered last week. We also saw last week this idea that, 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 that it, it does not make any sense for any of us to deny the reality that you and I were sinful people. We miss the mark of God's best all the time. But what First John says in chapter 2 was it says that in our sin, in our brokenness, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. That's what the text says. And that that is important for each and every one of us because because that is true, that means you and I, we don't have to function as our own advocate. We don't have to try to be good enough, strong enough, well-behaved enough for God to love us. In our brokenness, we have an advocate who comes to our defense and his name is Jesus. And we also looked in 1 John chapter 2, we saw this weird word, propitiation, which we were all supposed to use in an original sentence this week. Just kidding. Propitiation. It's a strange word that's in the text, but what does it mean? A propitiation is something that turns wrath into favor. And First John tells us that Jesus is our propitiation. That there is such a thing called the wrath of God. That, there, that God has wrath towards sin. And what Jesus has done through his sacrifice is that he has taken all of God's wrath so that all that is left for us is favor. And that's really good news. So it is when we see and we understand the great love that God has for us, when we see and we understand the extents that God has gone to to show us His love, that changes our hearts. That changes our hearts and then that subsequently changes our actions. In fact, First John 2 goes on to say that the way that we know we know God is because we obey His commands. That there is a desire in us to live in obedience. And the reason for that is simply because it is impossible to truly understand the love of God and remain unchanged. To truly understand His love for us and remain unchanged. Instead, when we see God's love for us revealed in Jesus Christ, that changes our hearts so that obedience becomes a joy and not a chore. Our attempts then to line ourselves up, to line our lives up with the teachings of Jesus are not simply a matter of religious obligation. They're not that at all. As a matter of fact, they're something that we're able to do with great joy because we know it'll be life-giving and soul-satisfying. So if that was last week, last week was talking about how God's love for us affects our desire for obedience, our desire to obey Him in our lives. This morning what we're talking about is how God's love for us inspires us to love one another. How it inspires us to love one another. In fact, if you 
have your handout that you received when you walked in or you're taking notes on the app, I want to give you our fill in the blank. It's simply this. Love from God produces love for others. Love from God produces love for others. So with that, I want to begin 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 7. It says this. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So what is this commandment? What is it that John is referring to? Well, in the very next chapter, he's going to tell us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. We should love one another. The command to love one another is indeed a command that is from the beginning, both in the sense that it is a part of the Judeo-Christian ethical tradition from the beginning, and it's from the beginning in the sense that it is of highest importance. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 22, he was famously asked by the Pharisees, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he responded, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul, in Romans chapter 13, makes a pretty incredible statement. When he says this, he says that the entirety of the law, all of the commands, which there are a lot of them, all of the commands are bound up in this statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or if we were to go all the way back to the Old Testament, God says to Israel in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. John says this is nothing new. You have heard about this. You know about this. And in the same way that the love of God is meant to inspire obedience to Him, the love of God is meant to inspire our love for one another. That would have been taught to John's readers, which if you'll remember, this was a letter written by John that was sent out to a bunch of different churches kind of all over the place. This idea that we are to love one another would have been taught to John's readers from the very beginning of their days following Jesus. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. Now... This is a simple command, but it is not a shallow command. This is a simple command, but it is not a shallow command. It is fashionable in church circles to talk about the need for deep teaching, quote-unquote, deep teaching. Sometimes churches will get criticized because the teaching's not deep enough, or other churches will use it even in their their marketing materials. I see this from time to time, like, we teach super deep, or they don't usually say it like that, but, you know, they'll they'll talk about, we're a church that teaches deep, or or maybe I'll talk to people uh, sometimes who will say things to me like, well, I used to go to this church, but I don't go there anymore because the teaching's not very deep. It's way better over here. We talk about, we use this sort of language all the time. Even I, as a 17-year-old know-it-all, harassed my poor youth pastor by telling him, come on, man, we need to teach deeper. It's like, what do you mean by that? We just need to do it. I don't know. 17 years old. Knew it all. So we talk about this all the time. And deep teaching is good. Don't get me wrong. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he bemoaned the fact that he had all of this deep instruction that he wanted to give the Christians in Corinth, but they weren't ready for it. And that was that was an unfortunate 
situation. So I'm not against deep teaching, but don't miss this. In our pursuit of deep teaching, may we never neglect deep application of simple truth. I'm going to say that again. In our pursuit of deep teaching, may we never neglect deep application of simple truth. For many of us, and this this is certainly true for me, for many of us, we are educated far beyond our obedience. So while deep teaching is good, most all of us, we do not need more information, but we need deeper application of what we already know. Love your neighbor is not complicated. But it's not easy. The challenge is not in the comprehension, but in its application, right? And this is true, by the way, in so many different areas of life. Losing weight, for example, is not complicated. Like, losing weight is basically a math problem. If you burn more calories than you consume over time, you will lose weight. Not advanced here, right? And yet, if you talk to anyone who's tried to lose weight, they will tell you that trying to lose weight is hard. And if that has not been your experience, keep that to yourself. None of us want to hear about that. Right? Then it's hard. Right? Like, I'm having a hard time losing weight, not because I don't know how, but because I really like nachos and I don't really like exercise. Right? Like, I'm not like, oh my gosh, how do I do this? Like, it's very simple. But it's not easy. Or, or here's another one for, for the sports fans in the room. I'm, I'm a sports guy and it always cracks me up when I sit down to watch a game and, and I'm watching a game on TV and they'll ask one of the commentators to give the keys to the game. Like what does one team have to do if they're going to, if they're going to win? And it's always just hilarious to me because these keys to the game they will give are incredibly basic. Like if it's about ba- like my favorite sports basketball. So, you know, what's the key to the game? Well, they're going to need to rebound well and stop the other team's star player. Yeah, you have to do that in any basketball game, right? Like, I'm just waiting for the day where the commentator says, well, you know, Bob, what they're going to want to do if they're going to win the game today is they need to score more points than the other team. That is going to be critical to them winning today, right? But here's the thing. What they're saying is basic, but they're right. But they're right. The challenge is it's hard to rebound well when the other team is trying to stop you from rebounding well. It's hard to stop one team's star player. Why? Because they're a star. Right? It's not like, what do we need to do? The challenge is actually doing it. And at the end of the day, you can seek out as many advanced weight loss techniques as you want. But if you're not willing to devote at least some attention to burning more calories than you consume, weight loss is going to be a challenge. And you can employ as much advanced basketball strategy as you want. But if you can't rebound and slow down the other team's star player, you're going to have a hard time winning. Is there value in deep teaching? Yes. Is there value in seeking a deep and nuanced understanding of God and what it means to follow Him? Yes. But if we don't get the simple truth right, the deep stuff really doesn't matter that much. The the world does not need a bunch of theological whiz kids who don't know how to love their neighbor. Right? To, To look at this another way, I have what you might call a Kindle book-buying addiction, 
right? Like if there's a 12 step program for this, I'm ready to enter it. Okay. I have, there are like websites you can visit that'll tell you like what Kindle books are on sale. And I visit those sites approximately every single day of my life. And I'm always looking at them to see sort of what's there. And I don't buy a ton of books, maybe four or five a month. And they're only a few dollars each. So we're only talking about 15 or $20. But the, but here's the point. The point is I buy these books and then every once in a while I will just browse my Kindle library and I've realized, first of all, I like buying books way more than I like reading them. I don't know if any of you can relate to that. You know? But I'll scroll through books that I have and I would look, I look and I realize, why am I still buying books? I could never buy a book for the rest of my life. And I've got, and I, like I can keep myself, I bought a thousand page book. In what universe? Am I going to read a thousand anyway? I don't need more books. I need to read what I've got. I don't know that for most of us, I don't know that we need more, more information. We need deeper application. And as I look at my own life, I started following Jesus when I was 15 years old. Now, 21 years later, that's 36 for those of you bad at math. I look at my life And if I'm being honest, far too much of my conduct and far too many of my decisions are motivated by selfishness. There is way too much selfishness going on in my heart. And I don't know that, that I'm, that very often I'm actively trying to sabotage other people. I mean, I don't do that. But there are just so many times in my life where I'll look back on a situation or I'll look back on a conversation or an interaction that I have and I'll just realize, gosh, I was just negligent of what was going on with this other person in this time. Like, I had the opportunity to to serve or just to speak a kind word or just to, you know, inconvenience myself for the benefit of someone else, and I just didn't do it. There's just way too much of that in my life. And I think with God's help, I've grown quite a bit. But oftentimes it feels like, with me, in seeking to apply this simple but not shallow command to love my neighbor, I don't know if you can relate to this or not, but I just feel like it's kind of two steps forward, one step back. I've got a long way to go in applying this simple truth. So, so if you want deep teaching, I can give you deep teaching. But I know that what I need most is deeper application of simple truth. Deeper application of simple truth. And I've known so many people in my life who were dedicated students of God's word and who showed me by their lives what it looks like to love God and to love your neighbor. And I'm a more faithful follower of Jesus because of the influence of those people. But I've also known a lot of people that you would definitely want on your team if you were going to go on the Bible quiz show, but who were just mean. Like, I don't have a better word. They're just mean. They're just not very nice. We don't need more information. I mean, I think deeper understanding is great, and I pursue it myself. But we must be careful to ensure that our pursuit of information does not distract us from pursuing deep application of that which we already know. Verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. All right, John, which is it? Old or new? Make up your mind. Here's, here's, here's what it is. It's both. It's both. We've already seen how this is an old command. It's a part of Judeo-Christian ethical tradition from the beginning. It's a part of Christian scripture from the beginning. Um, in what sense, then, is it new? 
Let me give you this example. In a few months, my younger brother and I are going to go to a concert. We're going to see a band that was one of my, my favorite bands back when I was young. And I'm really excited. And my brother and I have been sort of joking with one another, saying that right now we're in training for the concert. That we're going back and we're listening to all their old stuff, and then we're listening to their new stuff, which is making us hope that at the concert they stick to the old stuff. And we're just trying to get ready. So, you know, I don't listen to this music regularly anymore. I want to get it in my head so that I know it when I see it at the concert. But let me ask you something. When I go and see this concert live, will the songs be old or new? I would argue both. They'll be old in the sense that they will be songs I have heard before, but they will be new in the sense that I am experiencing them in an entirely different way, right? It's one thing to hear music in your headphones or in your car. It's another thing to be surrounded by it in a live venue, right? It's going to be old, but it's going to be new. In the same way, if you see a world-class painting, you've seen paintings before, but what you see is transcending anything you've experienced, right? I had hiked I don't know how many trails before the first time I ever climbed Half Dome, but that was a transcendent new experience, right? Like, I've done this before, but this was new. Or if you if you see maybe a play you've seen before, but then you see it on Broadway, it's old and familiar, but it's new. You see an elite athlete, you're like, I've seen kids play soccer or basketball or whatever. I've never seen anything like that. It's old, but it's new. This is an old command to be applied in an entirely new way. In what sense then is it new? In the Gospel of John, chapter 13, Jesus is with his disciples on one of the final days of his earthly life. And while they're together, he says to them in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Jesus takes this old command and he raises it to a whole new level. He says, don't simply just love your neighbor as yourself. He says, love one another as I have loved you. That is simple, but it's not shallow. The challenge lies not in its comprehension, but in its application. And then he goes on to to say this in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have a Christian fish on your car. No, he actually does not address back of the vehicle uh, apparatuses, appar- whatever the word is, I don't know. I, I don't mean to make fun, but here's what he says. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's it. How, what is the objective evidence that we are disciples of Jesus Christ? It's not anything showy. It's not anything flashy. It's love for one another. That's the command. To love one another as Jesus has loved us. Piece of cake, right? No. I'm still trying to figure out how to do that. But let me try to explain how I think we can start. Because if we can't can't get the foundation right, we're going to have a hard time living this out. It has been said that if you're bored, you are boring. And I think that is absolutely true. (laughs) The idea that if I would have a day or even an hour to myself to just sort of do whatever I want, that I would find myself bored in that time, just... How could that ever possibly happen in 2018? There's so much to do. It has been also said that hurt people hurt people. And I think that's true as well, that I've come to see in my life, and maybe you have as well, that behind acts of anger and mean-spiritedness and spitefulness and all of that, behind those who lash out in those ways, there is usually great pain. And that does not excuse 
those actions, but it can help us in understanding them. It is also true that we are most able to love well when we have been loved well. We are most able to love well when we have been loved well. We learned last week that God's love motivates us towards obedience to his commands. Similarly, when we see the love that God has for us revealed in Jesus Christ, when we see that God loves us, even in our brokenness and imperfection, it empowers us to be able to love our neighbor in their brokenness and imperfection. A sense of obligation or a sense of religious legalism, that might inspire us to be nice for our neighbor for a little while. But it is only the eternity changing, sin-forgiving, heart-transforming love of God that empowers us to truly love one another and to truly love our neighbor. When we are loved well, we can love well. And I need us to understand, church, that in Jesus we have been loved well. We've been loved well. This is a new commandment I'm giving you. John says. It's true in and because of Jesus. And as you walk closely with Him, it is becoming true of you. And it's true because darkness is passing away and true light is shining. What does that mean? It relates to what I said a moment ago about being able to love well because we've been loved well. The idea here is that the light of God's love is already shining into the world. It's the metaphor that He uses. And as we love one another, what is that? That is God's light shining through us. And understand, let me be very clear. Our love for one another is not how we earn anything. It's not how we earn anything. Rather, it is objective evidence of what has already occurred in us. In the very next chapter, in 1 John chapter 3, he's going to say that we love one another not to inherit eternal life, but we love one another because eternal life has been given to us. And in 1 John 4, he says, we don't love one another to try to get God to love us, but we love one another because God has shown us such perfect love. It is, again, evidence of what has changed our hearts. In the same manner that love inspires obedience towards God, it produces love for our neighbor. So when you're struggling to love, like I so often do, does that mean that you need to simply find neighbors who are less irritating? It is certainly possible that your neighbors, both literal and metaphorical, may be irritating. But finding new neighbors is likely not the answer because the power to love does not come from the tolerability of those around you. The power to love others comes from the love that God gives you. The power to love others comes from the love that God gives you. Verse 9. We're going to take three verses all in one chunk here. Here we go. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John says the implications of this command to love are significant. Insofar as we love one another, we are demonstrating that God's love lives in our hearts. However, if we claim that God's light, God's love lives in us, and yet we hate our brother, the text says, we are still in darkness. And we need to be clear that when the New Testament talks about this concept of hate, it's not talking about like clenched fist, red vein, like the whole deal, like yelling and screaming, that sort of thing. 
Because a lot of times we'll see things like, you know, telling us not to hate like we just did. And what you and I will do is we'll say, well, like I'm not doing that. Like there are people I don't, I don't really like. But I mean, I love them in the Lord or whatever because I have to. But I don't like them. I don't pay any attention to them. I don't really care what happens to them. But I don't hate them. So I'm good. But hate in the New Testament sense is not the fist clenched, yelling, vain, bulging, kind of that whole deal. It is much more broad. That hate in the New Testament sense is negligence. Hate in the New Testament sense is simply demeaning one another. Hate in the New Testament sense is simply tearing down the value of another person. The the definition is much more broad than we might think. And here's a little bit of cultural context that I think is interesting in light of what the text says. Several of the churches that John was writing to were under significant duress at the time of this writing. We talked a little bit last week about how there was all sorts of false teaching going around. And this false teaching was sort of gaining a following. So much so that people were starting to leave some of these churches and follow the false teachers. And with people leaving and sort of the chaos that came from that, these churches were in duress. They were in stress. That creates challenges. And here's what a lot of us know by virtue of just simply being human. It is in times of stress that we can see truly if we're walking in light or walking in darkness. Stress is what reveals that. I mean, we all know people who have sort of a weird, like, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing going on. Like, oh, you seem really nice when everything is fine. And then things get stressful and it's like, whoa, hey, (laughs) what's going on there, right? What is that? In times of stress, we see what's really forming us. In times of stress, we see if we're walking in light or in darkness. In times of stress, we see, have we been formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or have we been formed by things like insecurity and tribalism and suspicion? Are we people who can speak the truth in love to one another as the Bible commands? Or are we people that only want to defend ourselves and defend people like us? I fear too often that too many of us as Christ followers were the latter which only shows that we need to abide more in Jesus and abide less with voices that are training us to hate. Too often in times of stress or disagreement, maybe you've experienced this in your family or your workplace or maybe in a church experience, too often in times of stress or disagreement, the knives come out, right? And in those moments, if our love for one another was simply a facade, that facade goes away real quick, right? So the question then is, can we as Christ followers learn to be people who love one another in disagreement? Can we find our identity in Jesus and not in our opinions? Can we actually model for the world unity in the midst of diversity? Can we love one another in stress? And if we can't love one another in stress or disagreement, are we, I mean, let's just be honest here. Are we really loving each other at all? Because we can disagree and love one another. We can walk through tension and love one another. And we can be, what we can do is we can be a witness to the world of unity and love in a time which, I don't know if you've noticed, things in our society are a little heated right now, a little emotionally charged at the moment, right? And what we can do as the church of Jesus Christ is we can model for the world unity and love in a, in a difficult and emotionally charged time or... We can learn to be disagreeable and tribalistic just like the world. 
And John could not be more clear. When we love one another with love that covers our disagreements and our differences, we are walking in the light. But when we're discipled in hate, we're in darkness. Back in April, I was watching a a late-night talk show because I like to use my time wisely. And the guy had a guest on who I literally had never heard of before. He was some pundit. But he made this just incredible observation that has stuck with me ever since. He said that we have reached a place culturally where you can do almost any horrible thing as long as it annoys the right people. It's true. That's not even I think it's true. It's true. It's true. As tribalism has ravaged our society, we have largely reached a place where many of us will defend that which is gross and profane as long as it disparages people that we don't like, although we would never tolerate that sort of thing that was directed towards us. What is that? That's walking in darkness. And you might say, Brian, what are you referring to specifically? There are so many examples of this, I don't have time to name them all. And you might say, oh my gosh, is he talking about me in the way that I think? I don't know. But if you feel that way, pay attention to that feeling. There might be something there for you. It's walking in darkness. It's a lust for power rather than a desire for virtue. It's a formation by something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Put simply, in the New Testament sense, it is hatred. It is hatred. And listen, these phenomena, I'm referring to them as as existing on sort of a broad kind of cultural societal level, but they exist interpersonally as well. Like how many of us, when it comes to our interpersonal relationships, we are unwilling to do the work to heal our hurts. We're unwilling to do the work of confession and forgiveness and reconciliation. So we all too easily drift into hate. And hate so often in our relationships in 2018, what does it look like? It looks like negligence. So it doesn't really feel like hate, so we just sort of let it lie there. Because we don't do the work. But it is absolutely hate in the New Testament sense. I read an interesting article in Psychology Today. It was published in 2017, but I read it just this last week. And it was called The Psychology of Hate. The article cited several psychologists who said in different ways that when we hate one another, it is often a projection of that which we don't like in ourselves. We think our hatred for other people is about them, but really it's about us. People people who are able to hold themselves with compassion, who are able to have compassion and grace for themselves, are able to become the sorts of people who show compassion and grace to others. When we are when we are spewing hatred towards others, we think it's about them. It is not. It is about us. It is about us. So if we are going to be people who walk in the light, we must be honest about the fact that when we are expressing hate, it is because there's something going on in us that needs fixing. So I want to ask you, what's going on in you that is causing you to hate? Do you need to ask God to search your heart and root out the hate that you have for a person or a people group? And I don't mean the sort of half-hearted prayer where we say, okay, God, I just want to be be honest right now, and God, would you reveal to me any hatred for any person or people group that I might have? And Oh, no, no, not them, Lord. You must hate them as well. Sure, they deserve it. Surely you understand. You agree with me as always. I know, not them. Because it's too easy to do that, right? I mean a prayer where we earnestly ask God to reveal, God, what is broken in me that is causing me to hate? Where am I lacking compassion and grace for myself? 
Where do I need to more understand your truth? Because if I'm going to have hatred rooted out of my heart, I need to ask God to do what only God can do, and that is to heal what is broken in me so that I can respond to difficult situations with love. You need to do the same thing. You need to do the same thing. And let me just tell you, something, something that interferes with this process, we do this with all sorts of issues. It drives me crazy. We say things like, say it's an interpersonal relationship. We say, well, I'm not going to make an effort to make things better until he does. Right? Or if it's like a broader cultural thing, we say, yeah, I know that I'm, I'm telling lies or I'm spewing hate towards people that aren't like me, but, but they do the same thing to us. In what other area of your life are they your standard for acceptable behavior? Right? Our standard is Jesus. Our standard is Jesus. So, so, so Christ followers should be the absolute last people to say, well, I'll start to change when they do. Christ followers should be the absolute last person to excuse their own misbehavior by saying, yeah, well, people that aren't like me, they do the same thing. No. No, that's not our standard. Our standard is Jesus. Or one other way to illustrate this, since John uses this metaphor of light and darkness, and he says that when you and I, when we're, when we're filled with hatred, that we're stumbling around in the dark and we do not know where we are going. So when you and I refuse to do the work to root hate out of our hearts, it is like we're joining arm in arm with whoever it is that we've got an issue with, whoever it is we hate, and we're just fumbling around, eyes closed, no idea where we're going, saying, I'm not opening my eyes until you do pretty silly when you look at it that way, isn't it? And listen, there there are plenty of situations where full reconciliation and and friendship are impossible. I, I get that. But the point of all of this is we can be free from hate. That God, by his Holy Spirit, empowers us to be free from hate. You and I, we are called to be people who hate things like dishonesty and injustice and violence and poverty. Those things break the heart of God, and we are indeed called to hate those things. But Too often, our hatred of evil causes us to hate people. And listen, in the world, this is how it works. People that disagree with one another, they simply try to crush one another and defeat one another. That is not the way in the kingdom of God. Our call as Christ followers is to be transformed by the love of God so that we might love others into transformation. That's our call. That's walking in the light. And listen, are we going to be perfect in these things? No. And we have a God who is faithful and just to forgive us, even forgive us for the hatred in our hearts. But we need to understand that when we grow comfortable with letting that hatred sit there, essentially we're we're stumbling into darkness. We're essentially letting our ego block the light of God's love. We're being formed by something other than the light of Jesus Christ. And I just cannot believe for a moment that that's what God wants for us. The passage concludes with three poetic verses that say this. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. There are a fair amount of discussion among scholars about what exactly John is trying to do here. I read a whole bunch of commentaries this week and got a whole bunch of different views. Here's what I think is going on. I think he's addressing the whole community with this phrase, little children, because as we saw last week, that's a phrase of pastoral love and encouragement that he uses for 
all of his readers. And then he's addressing two subgroups. He's, he's talking about this, this idea of, of fathers, which the Greek word there is ambiguous. It could also be parents. He's referring to the spiritually mature, those who have walked with Jesus for a very long time. And he has particular things to, to emphasize with them. And then he's talking about young men, which I think is a reference to those who are spiritually less mature. Not necessarily those who are sort of comfortable and in maturity, but simply those who are newer to faith. And he has some points of emphasis for them. That's what I think is going on. That's what a lot of scholars seem to think, but I could be wrong. But what to me is undeniably clear is that these three verses lay out some practical benefits of being formed by the simple but not yet shallow command to love God and love our neighbor. So briefly, let's just look at these three categories. First, he says, little children, I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven. I want to ask you, do you believe that your sins have been forgiven? Like, I get that that's a very basic question if you've been in church world for a long time, but do you really believe it? Do you really believe it? The forgiveness of sins is so absolutely fundamental to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is absolutely fundamental to our ability to walk in light and not in darkness. If you don't believe your sins are forgiven, that is going to create a heaviness and a darkness in you. But it is when you come to understand that yours, yes, your sins have been forgiven, that you're able to forgive others. When the angel awoke Joseph before Jesus was born, the angel said, you're going to have a child, his name's going to be Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Jesus saves you from your sins. Then the Apostle Paul instructs the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Understand the church is a community that is built upon the forgiveness of sins. We are a community of confession as we confess our sins to God and confess our sins to one another. And we're a community of forgiveness as we receive forgiveness from God. And then we we express that forgiveness to each other. Not that we're the ones doing the forgiving, but we're the ones who come alongside one another. When we are broken by our sin, we need a brother or a sister to come alongside and point us to the cross and remind us that our sins have been forgiven. And it is that very forgiveness that inspires future holiness. I need to ask you, do you believe that there is forgiveness for you? Because there is. And why is there forgiveness? It is for His name's sake. In the ancient world, your name was not simply a collection of letters on your birth certificate. Your name was your character. It is because of the character of God, who is by His very nature kind and merciful and forgiving, that we have forgiveness of sins. And then He says, I'm writing to you fathers... Because you know him who is from the beginning. Like I said, could mean parents. Our very first core value here at Bridgeway is knowing God. Because the Christian life begins and ends with knowing God. And while the knowledge of God is available to all, a relationship with God, much like a human relationship, there is a certain level of depth and of intimacy that comes from time. And there is simply no replacement for time. And those of you that have been walking with Jesus for a long time, you're able to look back at your life and see His faithfulness. You're able to see, like, like, like the psalmist writes in Psalm 90, he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. If you've walked with Him for many decades, you know that is true in a deep and profound way. And, and for those of you who would fit that description... 
Or perhaps for those of you who, 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 you, who you, would, you would accept the label older, and I will let you decide if that applies to you or not. If you, if you would be someone who, who could be described as older, I just want a brief, would give you a brief word of encouragement. I need you to understand how much my generation and those behind me need your example. I need you to understand how much we need your example. And please know that you're making a difference. Even if it feels like things are changing culturally so fast and there's a lot going on, you're making a difference even when it doesn't feel like it. Your steady faithfulness is so desperately needed. When, when I was, I became a Christian when I was 15. And when I was young, spirituality wasn't totally absent from my home, but it was not a particular point of emphasis. So as a result, that whole time up to age 15, I never really saw adults worshiping. That just simply was not a part of my childhood. Just I just never saw it. And it's just amazing to me that here I am, 21 years later, been a pastor for all this time, have, have kids of my own and my own family, and I'm like, I'm so far moved on from those early years. That even still now, when I see somebody from like my parents' generation worshiping the Lord passionately, that ministers to me in deep and profound ways that I struggle to articulate, even now. In fact, there are even times, right back here, there's like a spot you can sit and you can see out here, but it's hard to really see back there. Sometimes I'll just stand back there and I'll watch. It's way less creepy than it sounds, I promise. Or even sometimes when I'm sitting, this is a service that my wife and I attend. Sometimes when I'm sitting in service and worshiping, I'll just be looking around the room. Your example, and knowing that there are years and decades of faithfulness behind it, ministers to me in a profound way. Or one other just quick, just incredible story. So something we do here at Bridgeway is right before the first service of the day, on either Saturday or Sunday, we have two members of our prayer team come and pray with whoever it is that's speaking. And I always say, I'm not ready to speak until the prayer team comes and we pray. They finish and I'm like, let's do this. All right, I'm ready to go. Yesterday, 3.30 p.m. I'm I'm here, my mind's in a hundred different places. And a couple walks into my office who I know pretty well. They are not just old enough to be my parents, they are old enough to be my grandparents. And they came in. And the husband, he spoke words from the scriptures over me. He prayed scripture over me. And then you want to know what these two people did? These people, old enough to be my grandparents, they didn't sit in my chairs. They got down on their knees around the coffee table in my office and begged God that his spirit would move powerfully in this place this weekend. Wow. Wow. I need you to know, those of you that are that generation, We desperately, desperately need your example. And he says to young men, those who are young in faith, you are strong. The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. First of all, you're strong. There's a strength that comes from God that belongs to us. Ephesians 6, Paul writes, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. This is something for all of us, not just those who are new to faith. There is something profound about knowing that the strength for every aspect of our lives, the strength for the battles that we fight, comes not from ourselves, but from God. And this strength comes in part from being rooted In God's word. How does a young man keep his way pure? Psalm 119 verse 9 says, by guarding it according to your word. Or my, one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 1, 
talks about the person whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And the psalmist goes on to describe such a person as a tree planted by streams of living water that yields its fruit in its season. It's a picture of faithfulness. It's a picture of faithfulness. And it's that strength and that rooting in God's word that leads to the third statement that is referenced in the passage, and that is that you have overcome the evil one. And my comment on that is very brief. The power of the devil is no match for the power of God's word. So if you want to overcome the devil, root yourself in the word of God. Root yourself in the word of God. And everything that is listed in these verses, 12 through 14, they they are gifts from God. They are gifts that empower us to love him, to walk in obedience, and they are gifts that empower us to love one another. When we are grounded in God's word, when we overcome, we can overcome evil because we know God is our father. We have strength that comes from him and God's word abides in us. So what's the bottom line? We're talking about these commands that are so simple, but they are not shallow. And I believe that in a world that is only growing more and more isolated, and in a world that is only growing more and more tribalistic, it is by our love for one another that we can powerfully demonstrate to a watching world the reality of the gospel. And if we get this right, it changes everything. And if we get this wrong, there is so much that just doesn't matter. So that means that you and I, individually and as a community, we have tremendous incentive to summon the courage and the strength to root hate out of our heart with God's help. We have tremendous incentive to press into the love of Jesus so that we might walk in the light of God's love. And so we can be people who show the world the love of the Father through our obedience to the simple but not shallow command to love one another, love one another, love one another. Amen? Amen. I want to invite the prayer team to come on up. These men and women would absolutely love to pray for you if that would be of benefit to you. If there's anything that was stirred up through worship or the message this morning or just anything you've got going on, come see them. They would be honored uh, and blessed to be able to pray, to pray with you. Let me just pray a blessing over all of you and, and we'll be dismissed. God, thank you so much that you do not leave us to summon the strength to walk in obedience by ourselves, but rather, God, you show us heart-changing love and invite us to be transformed. God, thank you that you don't simply just tell us to love our neighbor and leave us at that, but rather you have given us Jesus who shows us perfect love. You have given us an example. And you give us your Holy Spirit that might empower us to love. So God, I pray that we would be people who are formed by your love and who are able to then respond to your love with great with obedience towards you and great love for one another. And God, may we be a church that, that is a witness to our community and a witness to the world of the great love that you have for us by the way that we love one another. So Holy Spirit, empower us to do these things for your glory and our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your weekend.